listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. is Psalms 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Do you guys ever get uh, really brilliant insights uh, at the most random times and places, sometimes maybe like in the shower uh, when, you know, you have an opportunity just to be alone? I had a few, uh, I don't know, a few weeks ago, months ago, uh, what I thought was an amazing insight into uh, human nature uh, out on the tennis court. Uh, I came to this realization that uh, we as humans are not very good at making choices that will lead to our ultimate long-term happiness. And this realization came to me uh, because I was playing tennis and about 20 minutes in, I was wheezing for breath and uh, running uh, ragged and my shots were missing and I couldn't get my serves in because I like to play tennis but I don't like to exercise and practice. And that's a problem because what would actually lead to my happiness and enjoyment in playing tennis is uh, discipline and effort and intentionality. But the couch is really comfortable. And God created snooze buttons for a reason right? I mean, think about that. Uh, any, anyone else relate to any of those dynamics? Uh, the ways that we can choose things that look good right in front of us in the short term, but we know are going to cause problems down the road, and yet we still end up doing it. You know, I want to get a good grade on a test or uh, look good for this project that I need to prepare for, but man, this new game in the Play Store looks really exciting and fun. Uh, I know that I need to get a good night's rest, but oh man, here comes another episode of that TV show that I really love. I want peace, but man, sometimes it feels good to hold on to a grudge about that person that hurt me or tell someone else about how that person did me wrong and you know, kind of nurse that desire for vengeance. I really want to know that I'm going to have enough money to retire on, you know, so I'm not out selling pencils on the street corner. But I don't like budgeting and finance, and so um, I'd also really like to have a new 60-inch TV. Does that make sense? Like, we are not really, it's not just that we're impatient. We're often not very good judges of what really matters and putting things in the right perspective. We struggle sometimes to really act on what we believe to be good and true and life-giving. And that's kind of what Psalm 1 is getting about, and getting at, and why we need to hear it. Although, at, at first glance, 
you kind of wonder, right? Uh, I mean, if you haven't already, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 1. We're on page 528 of these uh, Black Pew Bibles, chair Bibles, uh, in the seat underneath in front of you. Old habit. Uh, Or pull out your phone and uh, bring up your faith app, and it will have Psalm 1 loaded for you already. I mean, we hear this talk about walking in the counsel of the wicked and standing in the way of sinners and sitting in the seat of scoffers, and we're like, <laughs> come on, I mean, nobody was going to, I mean, we're not going to choose that, right? But that's exactly why we need to hear it, because we don't think that we're choosing destruction and disappointment and death and failure. We all think that we're choosing what is good and right and healthy and appropriate, But a lot of the time, we later realize we've taken shortcuts that lead us in the wrong direction, away from what we ultimately want. I mean, it's like the t-shirt says, you know, abs are great, but have you tried donuts? I mean, donuts are right here. Abs are way out in the future somewhere, maybe, and the donuts smell really good. But the reality is, you know, donuts are for a moment but diabetes and cardiovascular disease are forever. It's the gift that keeps on giving. See, that's the thing. I I think we struggle to make the connection between the choices that I make now and the kind of life that I actually want to live and the kind of person that I want to be. Because I think maybe sometimes, at least I'm good at convincing myself that what I'm choosing to do right now isn't really about you know, the future and a direction that I'm heading. It's just a choice that I'm making. It's just an isolated option. We think that we are just making choices, but we're really choosing a path. We're not making isolated decisions that, you know, sort of stand by themselves. When we make a decision, we are choosing a path. And that's what the psalmist is setting out for us. And he's echoing something that the writer of the Proverbs says, there's a way that seems right to us, but in the end, it leads to death. I mean, nobody sets out saying, boy, I really want to choose a path that's going to ruin my life and lead to destruction and failure. But there is a way that seems good. And the problem is it leads to destruction. That's what the psalmist is getting at. That that God, when he speaks to us, is not so much giving us a set of rules to follow or commandments to obey, but a way of life. A way of life. And there's a contrast here, if you notice, between these two ways. Two foundations, two goals, two sets of values, and two drastically different outcomes. Because the reality is, all of us are following some kind of authority. Very, very few of us, you know, really go through life blazing a completely new trail that nobody has ever thought of or walked down before. You know, whether it's tradition or a faith that we've grown up in or family or a culture, we're all following mostly someone else's path. But we do get to choose which path we follow and what direction we want to go. There's a slogan in addiction recovery programs. Your best thinking is what got you here. Your best thinking 
is what got you here. Maybe the real thing is, is that we need someone else's better thinking. We really need some insight and wisdom from somebody who knows better than us. That's where we come today in our series, Transformation, as we look at why we do what we do in worship and, and how it shapes us, and specifically the role of God's Word in our worship. We sing God's Word. We pray God's Word. We read God's Word. We hear God's Word. We preach God's Word. We respond to God's Word. We are sent out of here with God's Word of commission and blessing over us. Even the, the physical layout of our worship center or sanctuary reflects that the Word is not the only thing that we focus on, but there's a balance here. We don't, in other words, we don't have an altar at the center like you do in some churches because the center of our worship is not the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifice of Christ is here on the cross, once and for all, done and finished, and, and Jesus has paid for us. He sacrificed himself, and that is balanced and shaped and instructed for us around the Word of God. Our, our worship services begin with the Word of God. We keep hearing and singing the Word of God. It leads up to this preaching of the Word of God, kind of an echo of what Jesus was doing in the synagogue in Nazareth as the scroll of Isaiah is opened up and he, he preaches to them for the sake of explaining God's word. And, and then we hear, we respond, and we go out to live out God's word. That's why we've decided to do it this way, because we come together as a community of people saying we need to be aligned around this word. This is God's actual communication to us. You know, in every other human endeavor, you look for the newest information, the latest research, the, the most recent data, and we come together to pick up a book that is thousands of years old, in part, in order to be underneath it and to learn from it, not to change it or to add to it, but to let it speak into us. Because we're saying this is the foundation, this is truth, and we need to align ourselves to it and be shaped by it. So with that, let's jump into this look at Psalm 1 today. The very first thing that stands out is an invitation, a, a welcome, an encouragement from God, an invitation to experience blessing. The psalm... The Psalms, the whole Bible, this Psalm in particular are, is answering the question, what is the good and life-giving way that God desires for his people? What is the good way that God intends for us to know and walk in? And verse one says, blessed is the man or the woman, blessed is the person. And that's meant to grab our attention. You know, like God is saying, do you want blessing? Does anyone here want more blessing in your life? Anyone want to say, no, I'm fine. I, I don't want any more of God's goodness. I'm, I'm perfectly full and satisfied. That's why this is here. Who doesn't want more of God's blessing? Now, we could render that in English. We could express it as happy or joyful if we take it in the, in the fullest sense. Happy, satisfied, complete, emotionally, physically, spiritually, relationally. 
It's not, not just an emotional response. It, it is a deep, settled satisfaction because when we're blessed, even when we're not happy, things are still good. So, who is this happy, this blessed person? What does that look like? Let me just pause for a minute here and let me ask you. If you think of someone that you consider as blessed, why do you consider them blessed? What is it that makes them appear blessed to you? I mean, honestly, as I was thinking about this, it's people that seem to have life working well for them, right? Their kids are doing well, they don't have too many health problems, they got a decent paying job, they got a nice home, they have friends around them. Those are all good things. And sometimes if we think back on our lives, boy, I really saw God's blessing, those are usually the ways we tend to define it. It's not what the psalmist says here. This person who is blessed is someone who does not do something and does something else instead. This blessed person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. Blessing is a gift from God. It's nothing we earn or deserve, but the psalmist is saying there are things that we do that align our lives, that structure our lives around what makes for blessing and happiness. And it's two things, a a dissociation with the wicked, with sinful people, with the ways of this world, and an association, a connection with God. But his or her delight is in the law of the Lord. And she meditates on it day and night. Wicked kind of gives us this idea of uh, someone in just open opposition to God, don't care about God, not interested, uh, maybe even violently opposed to God. To, to stand in the way of sinners is not to, to block someone's forward motion. It, it means to walk alongside with. Uh, it, it means to be allied with, to be identified with, to be welcomed by And to sit in the seat of scoffers is to reflect that kind of ridicule and scorn and cynical sarcasm. People who even discourage other people from believing in God. And you believe that? Why would you give your money to church? You're going to get up on Sunday morning. That's the day you sleep in. You believe that old thing? Oh, God. Don't be an idiot. You're going to waste your life on that? These are not uh, three separate activities, I don't think. I I think there's a a parallelism here. It's it's a picture of a comprehensive kind of life that rejects God and his truth and his wisdom and, and his ways. This scoffer, mocker, I think is particularly relevant for maybe our cultural moment. I think we're living in what some people have called an age of contempt. A really good article by Arthur Brooks in the Washington Post recently uh, from remarks that he made at the National Prayer Breakfast, talking about the way of Jesus, essentially in an age of contempt. And he defined contempt uh, roughly as holding others as worthless. 
looking down on people, dismissing them, discounting them. And boy, that's exactly what's being pictured here in verse one, isn't it? You can have power, you can have identity, you, you can have a sense of fulfillment as you condemn and, and mock and ridicule and tear down those other people who aren't in the group. And it, it feels like it gives life and energy and passion and God is warning us, warning us. Maybe it's not openly mocking like that or contempt one of the things that came to me reflecting on this was there were a lot of people who would never think of taking Jesus' name in vain, and yet sometimes maybe we make a mockery of our faith by the way we actually live. That people might look at folks who carry the name of Christ and say, I'm not sure I see a lot of Jesus there. It's a way of scorning and scoffing and mocking of its own. Look in, in contrast, though, in verse 2. But instead, the, the person who is blessed is, is not those things. And maybe that calls for some self-reflection from us. Instead, that person delights in the law of the Lord, and, and on God's law he meditates, she meditates, day and night. Blessedness is founded on a love and a delight and a pursuit of God in his word. Now, the law there is not the five books of Moses. It's not even the Old Testament. It's just a summary statement for God's word, his revelation. The person who is blessed loves to hear what God has to say. And, and yes, we, we study, we learn, we think about it, we reflect on it, we memorize it, but even more than that, it's a person who delights to do what God's Word says. And, and we'll expand that a little bit here in a minute. It's a life that is focused on listening to and responding to God's Word. Now, I don't know about you, but that word meditate day and night, that phrase sort of, I have to fight against automatically rejecting this, right? Like, because that's impossible. I mean, I'm, I don't really have time in my calendar to go off to a monastery and do nothing but meditate on God's word day and night, right? But the reality is we all meditate. You are all into meditation, whether you recognize it or not. Because it's not you know, going off into a quiet space and putting out the yoga mat and, you know, putting on special music or funny clothes or whatever and clearing your mind, it, it literally means to, like, ruminate, to bring up again and again. It, the Hebrew word is even an onomatopoeia, like, I love saying that. That's fun. Like, murmur. It's, it's to, to bring up over and over and process and, and talk about it and think about it and reflect on it. And we all do that all the time, right? We just don't think of it that way. Like, some people love to meditate on sports, like making sure never to miss the game and then 
uh, replaying the game with friends and replaying the replay with friends and then arguing over the call that was blown and who should have won and fantasy football leagues. And I mean, that, there's nothing inherently wrong with it, but you know, we can meditate, like know all the stats and all the people. Or, you know, that latest music video that's going to get dropped by that artist that I really love and I, you know, I got to know all the lyrics by heart because I've memorized all of that person's songs. I mean, I still have stupid Calgon commercials from the 70s in my head and, you know, episodes of Hogan's Heroes and who knows what else is in there and movie lines. I mean, a movie that I haven't even watched in 15 years and my brother and I will pick up the phone and we just start reciting lines to each other because I'm meditating on it. We all meditate. The psalmist is saying that the blessed person is the one who meditates on God's word and makes that the priority because it's a delight, because this person comes to see God's word is not a restriction, but it is a life-giving direction from a good and gracious father who wants to guide us in the way that is good, a way that is much better than Gilligan's Island or, you know, foreigner lyrics or whatever else is rattling around in this brain of mine. And then in verse 3, the psalmist goes on to give this picture of, of what that blessed kind of life looks like, what that person ends up looking like who is responding to this invitation to blessing. And the first image is that this person is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. The pattern of a believer's life, of a follower of Jesus, is that we are delighting in God's word in a way that it starts to nourish us and produce something in us. You know, a tree in the Bible is a common metaphor for a wise or godly or righteous person. And, and there's something significant there. This image, if you think of it like a, an apple tree in the fall that, that's just laden down with fruit, he's saying there's, there's a fruitfulness in this person's life. But do you ever think that a, a fruit tree does not really produce fruit for its own sake? The tree produces fruit to reproduce itself somewhere else. I think there's something significant there. I, I think that the psalmist is saying God's word tells us what real love looks like. There's, there's a fruitfulness that's produced as God shapes our lives and leads us to truly love for the sake of others. And it changes how we think about love. Love is not about what I can get. Love is not about finding this person who is going to satisfy all my desires and fulfill all my hopes and never let me down or hurt me or disappoint me. Love has been defined as the willing denial of self for the good of another. It's not what I went to seminary for. Uh, I went to seminary to get a bunch of knowledge, right, which I did, and the problem is that pursuit of knowledge was not really motivated by love. I, I loved seminary because I'm kind of a nerd and I like studying. I always had kind of an academic bent. And now I was just like soaking in all this information that, you know, I had answers to questions nobody was asking. 
And, you know, all that knowledge then became something that I was proud of, and, and it was kind of my job to go around and correct people's bad theology. I mean, doctrine matters, right? But, you know, I was zealous for truth in a way that was really not shaped by love because I was taking in God's word, but it wasn't producing Christ-likeness in me. It was producing pride and ego and loving to be recognized for how much I know. See so that the blessed person is not like a rich guy or rich woman with, you know, a big bank vault or a huge bank account or a mansion and full of all kinds of resources that, that you know, allow me to be self-sufficient. Real blessing is having Jesus' love reproduced in me so that I end up blessing other people just like a tree that provides nourishment for others. You've ever been around people like that? Fruitful people? Nourishing to be around you? You go away from them fed. They, they sharpen your appetite for God and for his truth. They, they feed your soul. Their, their words are encouraging and deepening and enlightening because they've spent a lot of time with God in his word. And it's shaped their hearts in a certain way so that they're the person that you're always glad to see coming towards you. They're, they're the person that is looking out for you and how they can bless and serve you and that's what God's intent for his people is. That his word shapes us in a way not to just give us knowledge of him, but to make us look more like Jesus, who is the ultimate example, of course, of self-giving love. And look again at the contrast in verse four. The, the wicked or the worldly, we could say, just the normal pattern of human life, people who have no concern for God, that's not what they're like. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, I'm not a farmer, um, Maybe some of our Iowa folks could give me more insight here. But what I understand, uh, chaff is, it's like the hull around the, the kernel of wheat or corn. And you, you grind the, the grain out and take what's edible and whatever's left, like the waste, is chaff. It's literally good for nothing. There's no nutritional value in it. It provides no life. It blesses no one. It feeds no one. It is worthless. And that's what God is warning us that the ways of the world and our own wisdom are like. Is my life shaped by God's word in a way that God is producing fruit through me to nourish and bless other people? Is, is that even the point of our Bible studies and, and our small groups and our connection classes? That our worship is about getting together to grow in the knowledge of God's word for the sake of blessing other people because the fruit of God's spirit is being reproduced in me and, and people are experiencing love and joy and peace and grace and hope and encouragement as they meet me because that's never going to get produced by filling ourselves, shaping ourselves with all the other stuff that we tend to meditate on and all the things that the world tells us are important. 
that's the thing to pray about, as, even as we come to worship, that I would be here for the purpose of being shaped by God's word to grow in love, to be a blessing to other people. That's part of why I'm here, why we are here in worship. There's not only a fruitfulness that comes here. There's, uh, in verse 3, a, a leaf that does not wither. There, there's an endurance. Uh, there, there's something green that is growing and thriving here no matter what is going on externally because it's planted by streams of water. Now, I have never been to uh, Israel or Palestine or Canaan and various names for the same place in the Middle East. Uh, but in my uh, junior high and senior high years, I lived in southwest Oklahoma uh, with my mom, which I think probably has a pretty similar climate. It's um, arid, uh, really hot in the summers, it doesn't get a lot of rainfall, and uh, there's not a lot of trees, and what ones there are clustered around streams and riverbeds and aquifers. And I don't know if you've ever been in a really, really hot climate like that, but, uh, you know, summers in Oklahoma can be pretty unpleasant. Uh, strings of 100-degree-plus days are not uncommon, and you go outside, and it's just like a heat wave hits you, and the sweat is trickling down your back, and you can see the heat shimmering up off the road, and the cicadas are buzzing, and you're out, you know, mowing the lawn, and nothing looks better than the shade of a tree at that point. Because it can be up to 20 degrees cooler in the shade of a tree. You see the picture here? There's a picture of refreshment. There's a picture of rest and, and encouragement because this tree, this person, is drawing deep on the resources of God's own word and God's life and they have something more to offer than just the circumstances that might be happening around them. See, a, a tree that stays green all the time has, has gone down deep to a, to a lasting supply of life. It, it, trees will bloom, obviously, when you know, a rainstorm comes or when the weather cools. But this is a tree that withstands the hard times because there's a deep source of life it comes from being fed and shaped by God's word. It's a, a real faith that is rooted in God's promises that leads to endurance. There's a real faith there. You see, all these people up in verse 1, I mean, these, these are, I mean, this is us, this is the world, right? Believe in yourself, have faith that things are going to work out, trust in your heart, work the plan, and you're going to succeed, and, you know, you just got to believe, and you can make it happen, and uh, don't doubt yourself, and, and that's only good as long as the circumstances are working out the right way. I mean, God is calling us to a, an endurance that is rooted in something much deeper, a faith that is grounded not in what's happening, whether there's rain or sun or clouds or storms, but a groundedness that comes from being connected to God himself. The, the person that lives only for this world is like chaff. That, I mean, chaff gives no shade. There's no rest. There's no refreshment there. It's, it's dust. I mean, it's like grit. It's the stuff you want nowhere near you on a hot day. 
But think of the people that you know who really are refreshing, who are encouraging, who pour water into your soul because they have spent time nourishing their faith in God and his promises and his word. Uh, I have a friend who's uh, had some experience in pastoral ministry, some hard experiences in pastoral ministry, and um, he was aware one time that, uh, you know, I'd had a hard week, uh, been down, taken some hits, uh, been on the receiving end of some really discouraging words, and, uh, you know, this friend did not say, oh, you know, don't worry about it, Jeff, I'm sure it's all going to work out, and it's all going to be good, and, you know, just believe that things are going to be great. He said, no, I, I believe in your calling, and in what I see God doing in you, and what I see God doing through you. God has been faithful to you in hard times before, and he'll be faithful and good to you in this. Don't give up hope, because I see God working, and, and I don't know how it's going to work out necessarily, but have faith in the God who called you and put you in this situation, that he is good, and, and he knows you, and he knows what's going on. People like that can bring real refreshment in life because their faith is grounded in God's character and God's promises. They endure because they've been shaped by God's own life and then they're able to offer faith and encouragement to others. Is that what God's word is, is doing in your life? Is, is that the way you approach God's word, that that we come together and worship or, or my Bible study, my private devotions, my time in God's word, and they say, God, help me sink my faith in something much deeper and more real than anything this life has to offer, much better than pleasant circumstances or a full bank account or anything else. Because the blessed person is the one who builds their lives on the faith of God's character. And then, and then finally, at the end of verse 3, whatever this person, this, this fruitful, blessed person does, prospers. God brings good out of it. God makes the good happen through this person's life and in this person's life and for this person. Now, maybe we have to take just a minute and remind ourselves of a few weeks ago when Pastor Joey did such a great job taking us through Psalm 73 and the, and the psalmist going into the temple and there's just this crisis of faith because it seems like the wicked are prospering. People who don't love God are sometimes the ones who get ahead and seem to have no trouble. And the people who love God are the ones who end up suffering. And here the psalmist is saying, those who love the Lord in all that they do, they prosper. I think there's a couple of things going on here. One, we probably need to make sure we're defining prosper the right way. There's, there's a flourishing wholeness that comes in knowing God and in knowing a real hope in him through his word that nothing this world can match. Yeah, prosperity flourishing is a byproduct of wise and godly living, and sometimes the wicked do prosper. Sometimes people who don't love God do have a good run of it for a season. But ultimately, again in verse 4, the wicked are not so. They're, they're like the chaff that the wind drives away, and they will not stand in judgment. They will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. Uh, 
there will be an ultimate judgment, and, and God knows. He's, he's giving us a real hope, a real hope for eternal flourishing. Because even in the suffering and the pain and the loss that God brings into our lives, God is still working a good purpose. Do you believe that? Does his word shape your heart to help you see that? Just like Joseph is able to say in, in Egypt back in Genesis after his brothers have you know, threatened to kill him and thrown him in a pit and sold him into slavery in Egypt and their family reunited and, and Joseph's able to say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You all probably all have stories of how God has taken something horrible, painful, destructive in your life and been able to turn it into something life-giving, to turn it into a blessing and to turn it into hope for others. The person whose heart has been broken by grief that helps counsel and encourage other people who are grieving. The young woman who's paralyzed from the neck down in a diving accident at 18 and, and leads a worldwide ministry reminding people of God's love and delight and pleasure in the weak and the vulnerable and the handicapped. That's prospering. Not because the young woman gets up out of the wheelchair, but because God is causing her life to flourish in the middle of the wheelchair. Do you believe that God does that? That that's the hope that we have? But it's not the only hope, of course. I mean, there's the ultimate hope. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. He knows. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's orchestrating. And he knows the ultimate end, you see. Because the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. What a horribly frightening word. If I continue down a path away from God and grounded in myself and simply living for what I can get out of this life, there will be an ultimate separation between me and God who is the source of all life and God's people. Like chaff that the wind drives away, blow on it and it's gone. Not even remembered. But, but those who love the Lord, those who are shaped by his word, those who trust in him and put their hope in him. He causes their lives to flourish and gives a real hope for the future where there will be no more sorrow or suffering or sin or sickness or death. And all of that that we've experienced here will not be worth comparing to the, the joy and the life that we will experience there and then. I look at this and this is not me. As much as I want it to be me, I can be as much like the person in verse one as the person in verse two and three. I, I read this and, and it humbles me because I don't love God like I ought to. I don't trust him. I don't value him like I ought to. And that's what points me to the Savior. That, that's the whole rest of this story the, the reason the word is so central to our worship is because it is the story for us that tells us not just about what we ought to do, but the one who has come to do what we could not do. That the one who is righteous, Jesus Christ, has come and 
delighted in the Father's word and done the Father's will so that I, who am not righteous, could be declared righteous and that he could then also change me and grow in me a heart that wants God, that wants to delight in him, that wants to know him, that wants more of his word so that I can walk in it and find life and blessing. That's the kind of community that we're trying to become. That's why we gather. That's why this word is so central, not just to our lives, but to our worship and what we're doing here, that we gather together to say we need this. We need a foundation, and we need guidance, and we need wisdom, and we need life, and we find blessing in God through his word to us in Jesus. May we grow all in delighting in the Lord through his word that he would shape us to reproduce more of his love, to bring more of his encouragement, to bring more of his hope to the people around us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word We pray that you would make us men and women who love you, who want righteousness and wisdom, who take delight in your word and trust you to lead us in the way that brings life and hope and joy. Grow your truth in us, Father. Grow us to be people who love and want more and more of your truth that we would delight in your word like someone who finds solid ground under their feet after, after we've been entangled in a marshy field. Set our feet on solid ground in your word. Transform us by your word. Grow my heart in loving and adoring you. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.